Okay, so we are jumping back into The Virtue of Selfishness, written by Ayn Rand. And um, today I thought we'd look at this concept that I think is very important. Um, You know, the namesake of the show is What is Money? One of the immediate questions beneath that, that I think is even more confounding, is what is value? Mm -hmm. Um, Something that we all talk about a lot. We talk about the importance of it. You know, we have personally held values. We, we try to create value in the world. We, um, you know, we denominate economic value and, and money and, um, it's how we determine what enterprises are satisfying the wants of humans versus not. And, um, it's something very closely related to action. So, uh, I'd like to just peer into Rand's mind about how she defines value. And I'll read just a small excerpt here to get us started. And she writes that value is that which one acts to gain and or keep. The concept of value is not a primary. It presupposes an answer to the question of value to whom and for what. It presupposes an entity capable of acting to achieve a goal in the face of an alternative where no alternative exists, no goals and no values are possible. So this is, um, you know, something that's very important. Value seems to be that which guides human action and uh, human action is what we're dealing with in almost every circumstance of life. Sure. So, you know, value is that which one acts to gain or keep. So the value is, in a sense, uh, a human wants, uh, uh, the wants of an individual, but not just a want, right? I can want a Ferrari. There's a big post on my wall, but I never do anything to get one. I never try to get a job and try to make a lot of money and try to pursue that. And it's not really a value. It's more of a fantasy. A value is something that I act to gain, or if I already have that I that I act to preserve it, to act to keep it. Right? Mm. So it's it your values manifest themselves through your actions, mm. right? So I I can I can if I observe Robert over a period of time, right? I'll be able to say at least to some extent, what are your values? What do you mm. think is important? What are you trying to attain? What are you trying to achieve? What's important to you through your actions, right? So. Uh, uh, you know, that is, that is what, that is the, that's how she's defining value. She's not saying here good values versus bad values, because they could be mm. values that are destructive versus values that are productive. Uh, that is a, that is kind of a, another level, right? This is at a very basic level that all human beings act to gain or keep things, mm. All human beings have values. And then we can talk about, well, which one of those values are good, which one of those values are bad. That is kind of a, a, a second level um, to the discussion. Yeah. And I, there's a, in the Austrian economic literature, they talk about, you know, this is the, the marginalism revolution in the mid 1800s, where they used to think value was objective. There was some, elementary particle of util in the world and this pencil had 70 utils and this wagon had 100 and somehow that caused them to develop a price and then that was all thrown out and we said no there are no 
there are no cardinal or objective values. It's all preference, right? It's order of preferences. Yeah. So this is where it gets complicated because, because Ayn Rand believes in objective values, but her definition of objective is different mm. than kind of the conventional view of objective. Uh, objective in this context, it would be that which is appropriate to man. That is that which mm. is appropriate to human beings. Uh, objective Ayn Rand is not in the thing. That she calls intrinsic, and many people talk about intrinsic value, right? The mm-hmm. thing has a value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we mm-hmm. might not be able to, it has X amount, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a particular amount. And how do you discover that intrinsic value? Well, you know, it might be through revelation. It might be through some math. It might be through, but it has a value in and of itself. The subjective view, and, and here, uh, you know, put aside a little bit the the, the Austrians' use of the word subjective because I think it's confusing. But the subject, historic, subjective view historically means whatever I feel like. It. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's worth a lot, then it's worth a lot. I feel like it's worth a little, it's worth a little. So it's it's really primarily based on just emotion and whim and desire. Objective now means what this is worth to me in the context of my life using my mind. So rational evaluation of what mm-hmm. something is worth to me. Mm-hmm. And we know, for example, in the marketplace, there are people who buy and sell stuff on whim, on emotion. They don't usually survive for very long in the marketplace. They don't, mm-hmm. they, you know, but, but that, that is subjective. Um, an objective participant in the marketplace tries, as, as, as Rand in the quote says, try to figure out what's important to him, to his life, what's objectively that is in reality good for him. Mm. So for example, you know, I might say cocaine is a value (laughs) in a sense that some people want it, Mm. right? And are willing to pay for it and it gives them a high and they want it. But I'd say that is, that is subjective because nobody Mm. actually thinks about it. Nobody actually puts the time to really think about it, actually views cocaine as good for them as Mm. something to be gained or kept. So cocaine has a value, a value only to those who've given up on their mind. Mm. Uh, So an objective assessment would say, no, for human beings, cocaine is not a value. Even though that guy might pursue it, even though that might might think it is, it's not really objectively a value. And and, and in the sense that they kind of two meanings of value. One is whatever people want, complete free fall. And the other is whatever an objective value is, whatever people want, that is also appropriate, objectively appropriate, suited, consistent with reality. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, so Rand is using the term intrinsic to indicate something that is intrinsic to the object external. She's using objective to say what's in accordance with life or reason. Exactly. And subjective would be something more of just an immediate want of some kind. Yeah. And, and the Austrians flip on this. I mean, manga, the original Austrian, was very much, I think, had, uh, when he talked about value, had very much Ayn Rand's perspective on value. Menga was the most Aristotelian of all the Austrians. Uh, unfortunately, Mises is, is much more Kantian. Um, and, uh, and, but, but Menga was very Aristotelian. And he had this, when you read Menga, he has this view of, um, of value. And I think it's implicit in, in really the whole Austrian theory of economics. It's, mm. it's uh, this idea of, it's not just whatever I feel like, whatever I want, but, but it is what actually helps me achieve 
the, you know, my goals, the next mm. value, the value right. higher up in the hierarchy of values, because values are on a hierarchy, the more important yes. ones, the less important ones. And, and um, uh, so uh, it, it, I don't think objectivism in Austrian economics, particularly as Austrian economics is understood by its founders, by, I'd say, Menga, uh, von Bavec, and uh, Mises, I don't think there's a contradiction fundamental contradiction between objectivism or conflict between objectivism and that version of Austrian economics. Right. I actually agree with that, but I do, I've identified something here that I think might be a circularity between the two. And I'd like to just try to parse it with you. So Rand is saying value is that which one acts to gain or keep. So in that definition, it seems like value is the aim of action. But as you know, the Austrians describe, and my understanding is that we all have this internal hierarchy of values. Whatever we're doing in a moment, whatever action we're taking is an expression of the highest value by definition. Like what? So it seems like Rand's definition is like value is what actions oriented toward. And perhaps the Austrian definition is all action is an expression of value. So I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to understand the directionality of value and action here. So uh, I, this is where I think the, the Austrians are economists. So, and they're not philosophers. And this is, this is why I always tell people when they read human action to skip the first 70 pages, uh, the paxology part, because I, I, I think it's wrong. Um, the, 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 that view of the Austrians is, that uh, that we have some implicit set of values and we just we just act on it. Mm-hmm. And Rand assumes that we have the we have free will, that we have the ability to choose our values, mm-hmm. uh, to act on them, to uh, uh, to change our values as we go along. But that the the rational person, the 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 virtuous person, the good person, actually is conscious of his values plans his values and goes out and pursues those values. And we can identify those values by how they act and the action, but the action is ultimately motivated by something that they want to achieve. And those are the values. So it's not the, 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 the Austrians have a little bit of, of this notion of uh, action is the, is, is the first thing action is the primary. And for Rand, thought is the primary, and, mm. and uh, so thinking and evaluating and choosing are the primaries, not acting. Acting is a consequence of all that. Hmm. That's you really think before you act, right? Yeah, I mean, it's such a blurry domain for me because I'm thinking of, like, if you're engaged in sport or something like that, it's, what what is the old saying that you fall to the lowest rung of your training or something like that, you know? And- sure, because you've automatized certain actions, yes. right? So, so you drive a car, you're not conscious. I mean, I, I learned how to drive on a stick shift, right? You're not conscious of changing the gears. You right. just change the gears when it's appropriate because you've automatized mm. that behavior. But note that you had to learn it. Mm-hmm. The same in sport, right? You hit a tennis ball yeah. in a particular way, but you've learned that. You've repeated it, and you've got muscle memory. You've got the, the connection between cognition and muscle. You don't think first and then act because you've already automatized it to such an extent. Um, and yes, if, 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 if once you've chosen, let's say, 
once you've chosen to pursue particular values and you found the methodology to do so, if you repeat that methodology often enough, it'll become second nature to you. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you at some point decide, you know what? Maybe that whole thing is wrong. Maybe I'm like, like you have mm-hmm. to change your swing in tennis, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard mm-hmm. to redo it after you've automatized it. And what process do you have to do in order to change it? You have to think it through. Right. You have to rethink it and re-automatize it. Uh, so the thinking is always there. It's it's just a question of it might the thinking might have been that I did five years ago. And now I'm reaping the benefit from it. But if I, but to, to start a new process, I have to, you have to put in the work of actually working it out. It doesn't, right. there's nothing programmed in us to just tell us how to do it right. Right. Okay. So yeah, like, I mean, the old saying, can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing. Like it's hard to do. Well, although you can, but it's hard, yeah. right? Yeah. It's hard. And so with animals, and she gets into this a little bit, but I guess animals just have a lower resolution consciousness than humans then because they have to learn things too, right? They have to learn how to walk and hunt and whatever, but they can't necessarily consciously reprogram themselves. They can't at all. So they can learn certain things in some limited scope. Like think mm-hmm. about what human beings can learn. We can learn to go to the, to go to the moon, right? Yeah. Dogs can't do that, but they can yeah. learn. This is a good guy. I don't like that guy or that guy beat me last time or whatever. They can learn simple ideas and they can hold them somehow in their mind, but they don't use concepts. They don't deal in abstractions. So they've got low resolution is one way of thinking of it. It's, but it's also, I think animals have a fundamentally different type of conscious than human beings. And the difference is this issue of free will. Uh, Animals don't have free will. Animals in a sense are pre-programmed and they're programming the more, the higher up the animal gets like uh, ultimately chimpanzees or, or gorillas, the more options are pre-programmed in them, but mm. they can't do the programming themselves. They can't change their mind in a sense mm. and say, no, no, I, what I learned last week, that's no good. I'm going to, mm. uh, the only way that would change is if they had a new experience or something in the, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, they act more like a computer, more like what we call artificial intelligence than human beings. Human beings mm. actually can program themselves can learn or which is uniquely home uh, human we can choose to ignore the programming Mm. we can choose to be stupid Mm -hmm. we can choose to commit suicide we can choose to be irrational we can choose to go on a on a bender we Mm -hmm. you know animals can't make those choices that are self-destructive only human beings can make choices that are self-destructive so that's a very interesting line because so with a human agent involved, they can retrain the dog or the monkey or whatever, but the yep. monkey or the dog can't necessarily choose to retrain itself, but the human can also take that same approach to himself. Yes. So is that the dividing line is like the ability to step out of oneself, look at one's programming and retool it because every, everything is being programmed right through life, animals and humans, yeah. but humans have this, uh, uh, um, agency, I guess, to step up. Humans have agency. Themselves. That's a big part of it. But the other part of it, because they have agency, they also have the ability to, to have conceptual knowledge. They also mm-hmm. have the ability to abstract. Right. Um, you know, uh, and a dog might be able to differentiate between a chair and a sofa, right? He won't have a word for them, but he sees them as different, right? They, they have different sizes. They have mm-hmm. different purposes. 
uh, maybe a table is better, a chair and a table. But a dog can't think in terms of furniture. Mm-hmm. Right? Think about furniture. Furniture is an abstraction. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as furniture. You can't right. point at furniture. You can right. put at chairs and tables and, and couches and say a word that combines all these things is furniture. Mm-hmm. An animal can't do that. They can't rise above the perceptual level. Mm-hmm. They can't rise above what you can see. Mm-hmm. Right. So theoretically, you might have a name for everything they see. But they can't integrate those into a, a higher abstraction, into a greater level of abstraction. And that limits the ability to think, right. to reason, to, to, and, 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 and to therefore invent things and produce things. And they're stuck. Uh, all they'll ever do, all they'll ever do is the same thing dogs have ever done, right? They, they, right. they, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to suddenly just, you know, invent a dog machine because <laughs> that requires abstract thinking and that requires that self-programming. Yeah. Right. It requires agency. So uh, uh, animals don't have agency and they don't have the ability to abstract. It's really interesting. So the inability of animals to abstract is the dividing line between Well, as she says in here, experience gives you, I mean, I think I hope I'm using the right word here, percepts. But mm-hmm. to abstract those percepts into a network of meaning that you can communicate and and reconfigure is concepts. That's conceptual, and so yes, that and, and, that's related that to the use the of whole, language, right? Where, because that leads to use of language. That's right. That's why well, human beings have language. Which is because worse? They, so is it is it the we all have percepts, every sentient organism, but then because of language, we can abstract it, or no. Or, no. The abstraction, you know, so uh, once we abstract, we don't have anything to point at. Mm. So we have to capture that abstraction with something. Mm. That's a word, Mm. right? So we invent, in a sense, language to capture the abstraction. Right. Because there's no other way to capture it. So, you know, imagine cavemen, I don't know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of years ago before They've started they, before they have language. You know, they can point to certain things. Mm-hmm. They, they can even draw it in, in, in midair. But to actually get a word, that becomes necessary once we're talking about an abstraction. Or for example, once we start planning long term, once I mm-hmm. want to tell you tomorrow we're going to do X, an animal can't say tomorrow we're going to do X. Right. It can only live in the moment. But once you start planning for the future, you're starting to deal with abstractions. You have to have words in order to to convey to yourself and to convey to others what you mean by those abstractions. Mm -hmm. That's when language develops. So language develops. uh, I mean, we obviously have the capacity for language inside, you know, in our our nuance. But language develops in order to make abstractions possible. Abstractions are not possible without it. And language, of course, is not meaningful without abstractions. So they go hand in hand. That's really so the. The use of language or concepts is equivalent to the discovery of time in a way, right? That we can actually recognize our existence today and think about days ahead and accord our, our present actions to future situations where animals cannot. Animals are just living in Absolutely. percepts. So think of time as another big abstraction, mm-hmm. right? So what can we concretely know? What's happening right now? Mm-hmm. We can remember something happening in the past, mm-hmm. but the idea of a past 
the mm-hmm. idea of a relationship between a past and a present and a future, mm-hmm. that's this amazing abstraction, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody discovered at some point and said, hey, we can connect this with a concept mm-hmm. called time mm-hmm. and, and, and giving it a word. And that word facilitates communication. But that word, more importantly, the communication, people overemphasize communication. The most important thing for words is our ability to think. Mm-hmm. That is, we think in words. So the most important I, the most important purpose of words is in a sense to communicate with ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's to actually engage in cognition. And mm-hmm. of course, the communication is good for that because we can, we can help each other engage in cognition and we can mm-hmm. support each other in cognition. Um, but the fundamental is to be able to think. Hmm. And that's what we need language for. We need language in order to think because we, again, we can't hold the abstractions because I can't, there's no picture yeah. that presents itself for time. Right. It has to be a story. Story requires concepts. Story requires words. Right. So without like humans pre-language, we were just in animal percepts, right? I mean, we couldn't string it together. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's interesting. I I don't know exactly how evolution worked out because it's pretty amazing uh, (laughs) where we got to, but um there clearly is a point in which human beings went from being animals to being more than animals, to being mm-hmm. super animals in some way, mm-hmm. to having free will and being able to conceptualize. And, and at some point that happened exactly how, what, what caused it, how, how can one think of it in terms of evolutionary terms? I don't know. That's mm-hmm. way above my big grade. <laughs> You'd have to really get an evolutionary biologist. And they'd have to have the right concepts and the right philosophy to really get that right. I think too much of evolutionary and evolutionary psychology today is perverted and distorted by wrong philosophy and by, by uh, an ignorance of what concepts actually mean. Interesting. Uh, Okay. So I have another question. I want to read an excerpt first though. So Rand writes, life can be kept in existence only by a constant process of self-sustaining action. The goal of that action, the ultimate value, which to be kept must be gained through its every moment is the organism's life. An ultimate value is that final goal or end to which all lesser values are the means. And it sets the standard by which all lesser goals are evaluated. An organism's life is its standard of value. That which furthers its life is the good, that which threatens it is the evil. So this is very interesting because she's, you know, what is that old quote that man is the measure of all things? She's framing this, that it's all uh, relative to life, right? If it's supporting life, it's good. If it's detrimental to life, it's evil. Um, And then I, I guess my question here is, you know, in the Austrian school, they distinguish between action and behavior behavior being the reflexive animal behavior, right? If you, if you hit your knee with a little hammer and your leg kicks out at the doctor's office, that's a behavior versus action is something motivated, motivated by purpose or intent. Um, does she make a similar, does she distinguish between action and behavior as well in this respect? Not, not really. I mean, because because she is interested in the action. She's interested in, in what we can control. 
-hmm. What we can't control, she's not interested in. There's no moral weight. Um, there's no moral weight to um, uh, to things we can't control. It's not that's not moral or not moral. Moral is only that which is chosen. And here she's talking about morality, and that's what's interesting, right? What is, the fact that my knee goes like that. The fact that I that I have certain things that are not by heartbeats and the certain biological process I've got control. That's interesting for biology, but it's not interesting for philosophy. It's not interesting for for uh, you know evaluating human beings and what they should do and how they should act. Mm. So for her, the question is ultimately, what value should you choose? And therefore, what should you act to game and keep? Mm. Right? Mm. What should you act for? And and what she's saying here is. That for human beings, for all living beings, put it this way, for all living beings, there was one fundamental alternative that conditions everything, that conditions all their choices, and that is to exist or not to exist. Hmm. Like a rock doesn't care, right? <laughs> it, 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 it's not alive. It, it has nothing to lose. If you break up a rock, it doesn't, nothing's changed. Nothing really matters, right? Life which is a self-sustaining, self-directed action. Again, life requires action. Mm -hmm. Life is movement. Mm -hmm. The static, the unmovable is not alive, right? A rock is not alive. Things that don't move, that don't act are not alive. If you look at all living beings, they're acting and they're acting for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And the purpose is life. The goal is life. It's self-sustaining action to self-sustain whatever it is that they're doing. Right. Mm. They're not conscious of it. You know, like an amoeba doesn't have consciousness. Um, and they're not choosing it. It's programmed. But that's a unique construct of molecules that generates this action in order to self-sustain itself. That's what life is. And the fundamental alternative that every living being has is, is to continue to self-sustain itself or not, or to go out of existence, mm -hmm. to die. And uh, you know, it it makes choices, choices in quotes, because they don't animals don't really choose, but it 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 acts in in ways that try to perpetuate its life, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes mistakes, and the lion eats you, or the mm -hmm. or you know, or or you know, some uh, you know, the light never shines on this plant and it dies. Mm -hmm. uh, but the plant tries to stay alive, right? It it'll mm -hmm. it'll send its um its roots to look for water. Its leaves will move to try to find the sun sunlight. Mm -hmm. It will take actions to try to survive. Sometimes it fails. Mm -hmm. So all human beings, all human beings, all living beings strive to survive. Mm -hmm. And then the issue with human beings is that uniquely we don't have survival coded in. We don't have a uh, you know, a program that says, here's how you survive. For that matter, we don't even have ultimately coded into us, you must survive. Mm -hmm. In fact, as human beings commit suicide, animals typically don't. What we have is a, a mind, a brain that is capable of discovering that which will lead to our survival. Mm -hmm. The actions that are going to lead to our survival and it, it can discover those that can lead to death. And the point she's making is at the end, life sets the standard for what, I, what actions I should take. Mm 
pro-life, right? Those are the values I should take because without life, value is meaningless. Without mm-hmm. life, I'm dead. I go out of existence. Mm-hmm. So the values one should pursue, um, and 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 the thing that makes values uh, meaningful, values possible, is the idea that you can go in and out of life. Hmm. If, if you were, she gives an example in another essay of uh, an immortal robot. If 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 you could, nothing bad could happen, to hmm. you, then you wouldn't care. Right? There, there, there's no there's there's no there's nothing to strive towards. There's right. nothing to avoid. There's just existence pretty sounds pretty bland and boring mm-hmm. um human beings at every corner we face the opportunity of death mm-hmm. and it's something to avoid and we also face the opportunity of living and that's what we should strive towards so it's life that conditions what is good and what is evil mm-hmm. that which promotes life and here life for rand is kind of capital l life it's it's not just for human beings, it's not just staying alive. Mm. It's living as a human being and everything mm. that entails, right? Mm. It's not living as an animal, right? A lot of you, a lot of people, you could argue, live like animals mm. in a mm. sense that they never use their mind. They never create anything. They never think for themselves. They never produce for themselves. They're leeches on others. Mm. That's not living. That's dying. Mm. And, and, and uh, so, so for her, in that sense, life is the standard. It's the ultimate value. It's what everything is geared towards. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So, so that we have values that presuppose life because you can't have values without life. So therefore life is the ultimate value. What then, okay, in the case of a conflict where say an act of a certain action would further one man's interest at the expense of another, right? Coercion, violence, theft, whatever. So that would be materially good for one, but evil to another, the one that's being perpetrated against. Uh, is she categorizing like all human beings as like the life of human beings as an ultimate value? So like, well, how does she, because no, your like, life, it your life like, is your ultimate value. It right? seems like there's some utilitarian assertion here, which she hasn't gotten into yet. I'm just curious. How does she, No, she never does. She doesn't, yeah. she doesn't go the utilitarian route. Um, 
She's saying your life is your ultimate value. And my mm-hmm. life is my ultimate value. Mm-hmm. And she would say the only way that each one of us can fully live in each other's company, right, mm-hmm. is acknowledging that since violence is bad for me, violence is bad for you, and therefore violence is out. Mm-hmm. Because even though I could steal your stuff, mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons, which you can go into, stealing your stuff is not good for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you a few reasons why. Stealing your stuff legitimizes stealing. Mm-hmm. Some dude who's bigger than me is going to steal my stuff then, and I won't like that, right? Stealing your stuff negates your life. Well, again, somebody, that means I've negated mine. Mm. Because there is a life is... Is it's an ultimate value to me, but it's also an ultimate value to you and everybody else. And if I've negated it, if I've said yours doesn't matter, I basically said mine doesn't matter. Mm. Psychologically also, stealing your stuff is a recognition by me that I'm inferior to you. Hmm. It's a recognition that I can't produce. I can't create. I can't make stuff. I can't take care of myself. Mm-hmm. My mind is impotent. And the only way I can survive is by leeching off the people who can produce, can create, do have a mind, and can mm-hmm. use their mind. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, stealing undermines my reason, my purpose, and my self-esteem, which we'll get to, right? But it undermines my self-esteem because it's basically telling me, I'm, I'm admitting to myself, I can't make it. I can't, I can't, I can't survive in reality, but you know, by use of my own mind. Um, and without self-esteem, you can't be happy. And without yeah. happiness, you're not really living with a capital L. So to her violence, any act of violence that's not in self-defense is an act that admits self-defeat. It's an act that undermines your own values, your own life, and, and your own ability to live with other people. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. So... So it's never in your self-interest to initiate force on somebody else. It's not in your self-interest to lie, right. to be dishonest, in other words. Not, I mean, you could imagine scenarios where it's in your self-interest to lie. But those exceptions, it's never appropriate to lie to gain a value. Mm-hmm. Uh, to protect the value, it's sometimes appropriate to lie. Um, but it's, it's, it's never appropriate to steal. It's never appropriate to, to commit violence against another unless it's in self-defense. Mm. Right? So, uh, and all of those are true because it's, bad for you it's not good for you if you think about human life not just as a like an animal does in the moment but if you think about human life over that concept we talked about earlier time Mm -hmm. right and this is the thing that human beings do they can plan for the long run Mm -hmm. and therefore they can evaluate their life in the context of the long run and they can say to themselves yes right now i might be satisfying my urges or whatever my needs Mm -hmm. by stealing but over the long run is this good for me and The conclusion is always, it is not. Right. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense to me. The theme I'm detecting here is this whole idea, stealing, coercion, violence. These are animalistic behaviors, right? Because you're, you're, you're prioritizing your short-run interest over your long-run detriment, uh, unavoidably, it seems like. But we have this issue where many people... As you said earlier, they do live unthinkingly. Mm-hmm. They do live animalistically, mm-hmm. non-productively. They just 
um, as she says in the essay here, they follow the ideas of others typically. So should an aim of civilization then to be to make stealing, coercion, violence, very expensive and or risky? Definitely. And, and so two things, one I'd say is she would say, you know, they suffer the consequence of their actions. So not everybody who is not living fully is lying, is, is stealing and committing violence Mm -hmm. and therefore needs to be punished. You know, somebody who's just a lead, somebody who's just a, a, you know, never have a thought for himself is a complete follower. You know, they live pathetic lives and and that's their punishment. If you will, they just never experience what it's like to be fully human and to really live as a human being. Um, But the people who commit violence, the people who steal, the people who commit fraud, we need a mechanism by which to penalize that. We need a mechanism by which to to extract them from human society so that we can all live our lives without having to fear, constantly fear, constantly carry a gun, constantly worry about those people, you know, attacking us. We need to make it so expensive that either they go away or we put them away, right? Mm. That's what prison, that's Mm. what, that's what a legal system is. And her view is that's, pretty much the role of government. That's pretty much all the role of government is. Mm. It, it, it's to extract violence from society. It's to, it's to make society violence-free so that we can engage in the kind of trading activities and that good people can pursue their values free, free of the, the fear and the, um, and the um, uh, you know, the, the, just the inconvenience and the the destructive uh, the destruction of people who commit violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, all right, the the justifiable role of government then would be to make society violence free, violence to capture stealing and coercion as well. But there's a trap here, right? Where you we've now vested the authority to violence to one group. And then they now have this ins- weird incentive to use that position <laughs> to violate well, but, other people's property. So how do we escape do that trap? So the question is, do they, right? Do they have that incentive? Um, and, and the argument is, the argument would be, uh, they don't, right? So first of all, they, they, we don't want to give them the means. Uh, and the means traditionally that's been given to government to expand its power is the ability to intervene in our lives, right? So the founders did a pretty good job in America in, in limiting the scope of government, but they left lots of loopholes, lots of them. Like, I, I, you know, Thomas Jefferson starts the first public educational institution, right? Right after uh, they have a constitution. So there's a loophole for education. There's a loophole for economics. There's a loophole for banking. There's a loophole for trade. There's a there's lo- there's loophole for using cohesion for taxation. There are lots of loopholes. And we still did pretty well in, in history of, of the last 250 years. I mean, a lot of wealth and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, happiness was generated as a consequence of the relative freedom America generated. Imagine if we could form a constitution and a government without those loopholes. They're truly limited. It's, it would be an institution that was limited in its scope, very clearly, very explicitly without those loopholes that allowed them to, to come in and touch our lives. And also imagine a society in which, there was understanding about what the world of government is. Mm-hmm. Right? 
there's never been one, mm-hmm. right? There's what, you know, a thousand of us who understand all of government in the world today, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 10,000, maybe 100,000, I don't know, but it's nothing, it's a speck. But imagine millions of people who truly understand what the world of government is. And, uh, you know, I think the founders understood that you don't stay free unless you value freedom. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, government will not stay limited unless people want it to be limited. And uh, yeah. it's the, it's up to our vigilance to keep it that way. So you can't create a system that's better than the people under it for very long. So our real goal is to educate people about the appropriate role of morality, why violence is bad for them and why, uh, you know, uh, coercion is bad. Uh, educate them about the proper role of government, and then they have to be vigilant in keeping it that way. But I don't think you can substitute any other institution for government in terms of preserving the peace. I think any other solution, including, I think, the the various anarchist proposals that are being made, I think it's not hard to see how they deteriorate into a state of violence. They incentivize violence. Mm-hmm. They incentivize force much more than a government does. So there, even the, 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 the vigilance of the people wouldn't help because they're fragmented and splintered into interest groups. So let's assume then that we had restructured the constitution and sealed these loopholes. We had an ideal constitution, whatever that is, assuming that's even possible. And we, okay, so we form a government based on this loophole-free constitution. We vest the power in them. What ensures their adherence to that constitution? And then what can people do if they overstep or overreach? Like how do, how do, how do the governed express their vigilance if government oversteps its bounds? I mean, a few things. One is, uh, and, and again, the founders were very good at this. One is you uh, you divide up power so that you don't vest power in any one institution of government, but you you create a, a balance uh, in in you know in in uh, in the United States we basically have four institutions that are supposed to balance each other out, mm. and we're really if you think about how they constructed it, it was really thoughtful, right? The the House of Representatives is the populist, the Senate, which and senators were not elected. Senators mm-hmm. were appointed by state legislatures. So the Senate, which is more, if you will, um, uh, removed from the population, less likely to be inflamed by the population. Then you have an executive branch that can veto what the, these two houses have to agree, which mm-hmm. is rare in, 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 a, in a proper government. And then the president has to agree because he can veto them. And then there's a separate entity that's completely independent that then can veto their veto, right? You can veto everything that they did if they say it's inconsistent with the constitution. That's a very clever way of doing it. And then of course, to the extent that there are elections, that's part of how we express our vigilance. Somebody uh, steps out of bounds. I don't know, uh, John Adams uh, uh, supports the, uh, what is it? Something in Sedition Act. Mm. And we say, whoa, that's, that's not consistent with the constitution. That's not consistent with what we thought the government was. Now, I think in a, in a properly understood system that would have never passed and the Supreme court would have ruled it unconstitutional, killed it. But voters then have a chance to say, no, Adams, you're out because you, you violated your oath to the constitution. Mm. And we, we, we choose to elect you. And of course the ultimate way in which you hold the government accountable, more difficult today, I think than in that distant past 
is the right to rebel, right? Mm. The, the, the right to basically revolution. That's not a right to revolution because mm. nobody's going to recognize that right. right. Um, it, it's your ability to, to say, I'm not, you know, we are taking up arms against our own government. Now, I think, I think in modern world with tanks and F-15s and atom bombs, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we, better, we better get all the other pieces really, really tight and really, really good mm. uh, because uh, you don't want to revert to that one. Uh, it, it becomes super bloody. Right, right. It, um, is money involved in here at all? Like as to have convertibility sure. to gold or... or- any sure, type fact, of money that's independent of government control, is that a mechanism? Yeah, the fact that the Constitution allows government to mint coin yeah. is a real problem, right? That's one of those big loopholes, big loopholes. Because mm-hmm. once, as you know, as you talk about all the time, once you control money, yeah. you control the lifeblood of the economy, you control everything. You know, one of the things that U.S. government did a lot in the 19th century, while there was relatively free banking, relatively, because it was still heavily regulated, they would switch between gold and silver and they would change the convertibility and they, would, you know, and so they created uncertainty and they created different reserves and banks, instead of being free, would have to buy government bonds. And that's how the government funded its deficits, would force the banking system to fund, to buy its bonds and consider mm-hmm. that as good as gold in a sense. So what you get is once you allow them to control the currency, once you allow them to control money, You've given them control over the economy. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, one of the most important things you have to do in a proper constitution, in a, in a revised constitution, is to separate all aspects of government from the economy. Mm-hmm. Government has no business in business, no business in the economy. Money mm-hmm. is a private creation to be created by banks or by other whoever wants. I don't care who, who creates mm-hmm. the money. Banks are the natural, but it could be a new institution that we've never even imagined, or it could be created on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wherever money is created, let the market decide. I mean, my view mm-hmm. of Bitcoin at the end of the day is, I might have a personal view, but who cares, right? Nobody cares right. what Iran thinks. What really matters is what does the market choose? In a free market, if the market shows Bitcoin is money, then Bitcoin is money. Right. Um, let there be competing currencies. Mm-hmm. And let the best currency win. But once the, the government could say something like, um, I mean, yeah, because I think taxes should be voluntary, the government wouldn't really have a preference in how it accepted, you know, it would have to, it, it might have, uh, you know, uh, 10 forms of currency the government accepted mm-hmm. for, for contributions towards it because it, it would need to exchange those into something that it could buy goods and services with. But it, it should not be anywhere close to the banking system or anywhere close to the monetary system. It should be completely separated. And since it wasn't from the beginning, the constitution was flawed in significant ways from the beginning. Right. As good of a document as it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, I'm going to try to argue this. Money, look, and I think money evolved through private transactions. I don't think government created money. Government took over money once it realized the power it had and Mm -hmm. and how it could use it both for marketing purposes and for control over the economy. Mm -hmm. But money developed from our need to to trade and the inefficiency of barter. And somebody came up with the idea and who knows what they used in the beginning. They used all kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. we know from uh, relatively primitive societies that they still use all kinds of things as money. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So lots of things can be money. There's no, there's no um, metaphysical commandment. Gold shall be money, right? right? You know, if somebody finds an asteroid that's one big piece of gold, that's not, you know, that's pretty inflationary and that's probably not a really good, although it's pretty expensive to mine. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, let the market decide what makes sense as money. Money might change over time. It has. Silver for a period was money and that was turned away. Tobacco was money in, in, um, in the Carolinas, uh, you know, before, before the United States uh, was created. Uh, lots and lots and lots of things throughout history have, have been used as money. And who knows what money will look like 100 years from now, if freedom is allowed, right? If, if we're allowed to experiment with money and, and, uh, and be able to choose our own money. Yeah, no, I agreed completely on that. Just the market should decide. And if it doesn't, you've got a problem. Right. It, that yeah, means- and we've had a problem for most of human history because the market hasn't decided. Right. You know, government government has injected itself into money since the kings figured out that they could they could put their their little stamp on these coins and they yeah. could chip away at the gold and 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 tell you it was an ounce when it wasn't really an ounce and they could hold the gold for themselves and all kinds of shenanigans uh, governments has has played with money. You know, and when the money lenders when they when the governments owed a lot of money to the money lenders. Well, let's go out and kill the money lenders, and and we solve that problem. I don't owe them any money anymore. And mm-hmm. a lot of the killing of Jews in the Middle Ages uh, was a result of the fact that princes and kings owed money to the Jews, so they figured, wow. let's go kill them. Then we we don't have to pay them back. Wow. Uh, yeah, so this whole idea of corrupting, confiscating, clipping, inflating money—it's like it's been a driver of a lot of evil. Absolutely. Um, and if you go back to the most ancient coin, coinage, not private coinage, but, but government coinage, it goes back to the, to some extent or another at the beginning of time. And yes, mm-hmm. the, 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 the seeking of money for the sake of money, the seeking of power through money mm-hmm. has uh, driven a lot of evil in the world. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So in, in Rand's view, then an animal can only really do good, right? Because they're only take they're only expressing behaviors that are consistent with life. As you said, not many animals are going to kill themselves, right? So, and in that sense, there is no good and evil for them. In, in a sense, because good and evil, good and evil um, assume, in a sense, right, free will. They assume yeah. choice, right? Since animals don't choose, whatever they do, they do, right? And and right. And, uh, and and you could have said, oh. If that deer had taken a left turn over there instead of a right turn, it would have avoided a lion. Right. But it didn't have a choice, right? Right. It, it, so it, it, it it's consciousness is a double-edged sword in a way, because we get this capacity for we can have we can have expanded good, right? We can create ideas of justice and freedom yeah. and all of this, yeah. or we can actually turn reason against itself even, right? You can commit suicide. You can torture people. You can do all these evil things. So that's no reason, right? That's, that's a negation. Of, I'd say that's a negation of reason. That's, that's ignoring. Well, I'm sorry, consciousness. I'm thinking of conscious. The thing that Absolutely. man has. Human beings are capable of evil where, as animals are not. Animals are a result of dealing with concepts and time, right? As a, as a result of the fact that they have free will and they're conceptual beings, that opens up the possibility of evil in addition to opening up right. good. So this and, ought this ought versus is, which I'll read an excerpt about, it only exists for the conceptual being. It doesn't really exist for the, the perceptual being. 
That's right. That's right. So, so uh, the whole field of morality, the whole field that she's talking about here, ethics, does not exist for a non-conceptual being. It, it, it assumes, presupposes con- ability to conceive and an ability to choose, an ability to, 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 to initiate the process of thought, which is what free will is about. So Rand writes, um, in answer to those philosophers who claim that no relation can be established between ultimate ends or values and the facts of reality, let me stress the fact that living entities exist and function necessitates the existence of values and of an ultimate value, which for any given living entity is its own life. Thus, the validation of value judgments is to be achieved by reference to the facts of reality. The fact that a living entity is determines what it ought to do. So much for the issue of the relation between is and ought. So she's asserting, I mean, I guess whatever is consistent to the furtherance of one's own life is both the is and the ought. Well, what is, is life. Mm. And what is, is your nature as a, as a, as a living being. Mm-hmm. And here the question is, well, what is human nature? What is the mm-hmm. essence of human nature? And she would say, well, the essence of human nature, she goes on to say, is that we are a conceptual being, right? Mm-hmm. We're the rational being. Mm-hmm. We're the thinking being. In other words, we're a conceptual being. And therefore, what ought you do is determined by what you are. Mm-hmm. Since you are the rational being, what you ought to do is be rational, mm. is to live up to your nature, is to follow your nature, right? A lion is, I don't know, what, what, you know, a, a lion is strong and powerful, right? It, you know, and that's what it ought to do, express its strength and power in eating other animals. Mm. We are the thinking being, and, and therefore what we ought to do is think, and think in pursuit of what? In pursuit of life. Mm in pursuit of our life. Mm. So again, that's the is. The is is the life life of a, a rational being. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how should a rational being live? By reason, by using mm. his mind. Hmm. And so that, I mean, it makes sense. But then you look at human nature historically, and it seems like we're wrestling between our animality and our civility very much so. And in the longest arc of history, we're winning at, we're becoming more civil by and large on average, you know, we, it's amazing to me sometimes when I go into a city and just see how many strangers are getting on with one another. Like we've actually created something pretty amazing that people. Yeah, but when, And think about the technology. Think about the technology we're using right now. Think about the skyscrapers, yeah. about the, 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 the amazing stuff that human beings have created. And it's all a product of, rationality of reason of yes. thinking planning none of it just happened because somebody had right. an instinct to build a skyscraper it all right. required actually sitting down with math and design and yeah. knowledge of materials and knowledge of all these things and, and designing something and building something so using your conceptual faculty generates massive values generates mm-hmm. amazing things and the animalistic side of us generates violence it generates destruction mm-hmm. it generates horror but to access our conceptual faculty is an achievement it requires effort it requires mm-hmm. 
Um, the knowledge that one can do it and, and the, the, the willingness to do it, it requires certain effort and work. And in past cultures, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, it wasn't clear, it, it wasn't clear what it was for, what could be achieved. Uh, it, it wasn't clear um, uh, what the nature of human beings was. I mean, think about the cavemen. They, 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 they were just starting to form concepts. It was still trying, starting to build the conceptual language, the conceptual understanding of the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to take a long time. It, it took a long time. And of course, then you get, you, you get diversions where for long periods of time, people believe that um, a conceptual faculty is 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 somehow mystical is in some way mystical mm-hmm. and that our concepts come from revelation or according to plato there's some other world where the our concept, our pure the pure form of our concepts live mm-hmm. and we're relating to that so this understanding that our concepts relate to the things in reality chairs are chairs there's no such thing as chairness in some other world mm-hmm. but but it's it's that it's 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 something that human beings can understand about a chair that is an achievement. That's a conceptual achievement. That's philosophy. That's so. So it is a process. And once in a while, you get these diversions where the process gets sidetracked. You get a dark ages mm-hmm. where we backtrack. But overall, in the long arc of history, we are slowly learning to appreciate our minds, to understand how they work, mm-hmm. and to apply them to living a better life, living mm-hmm. the best life that we as human beings can live. And one always is worried about backtracking and about when you see in the world around us today, for example, uh, people who advocate for backtracking, advocate for us mm-hmm. becoming more animals and, and becoming less human. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, that's what it's all about, is are we going to live up to being human or are we going to backtrack to be animals? And there's an interesting, you know, Jordan Peterson, um, it does this thing about the Bible, you know, he does these Bible lectures and he, and he, and, and he talks a lot, of, he talks quite often about Adam and Eve and, and, the, and, and the Garden of Eden. And to me, the story of the Garden of Eden is actually opposite of what I think most religious people take it to be. To me, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden are animals. Hmm. They can't reason. Indeed, they haven't eaten from the tree of knowledge. It's a tree of knowledge symbolizing reason. They haven't eaten from it. They're just animals. They're just there. They, 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 they don't do anything with their lives. It's, it really is kind of, they, they're not thinking, they're not producing, they're not creating. They're taking care of the animals. They, you know, they're gardening a little bit, uh, but they, there's nothing, there's no sex even because so Adam doesn't see Eve as a value or the other way around because right after only after they eat the apple, do they want to cover themselves up, which I think is a symbol for sex. Mm-hmm. It's just living as animals. Maybe they have sex, but sex doesn't mean anything to them. Mm. Then once Eve and Adam eat from the tree of knowledge, then they become human. Mm. They become truly human. And to me, this is man's evolution to a state of being able to choose, mm-hmm. being able to guide his life, being able to engage in productive activity, being able to engage in, in meaningful sex, being mm-hmm. able to value the other, the other sex in, in, in some meaningful way. It, to me, it's a parable. Mm-hmm. Of the transition between human beings as animals into human beings now as human beings, mm-hmm. as, 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 as thinking, choosing, living, uh, uh, you know, planning beings, cog- right. uh, uh, beings of cognition. Right. So 
eating from the tree of knowledge represented the transition of humans into conceptual beings. Yes. But in that transition, there, there, it's a double-edged sword again, right? There's, there, it's almost like we had to learn the nature of evil, I guess, across history to even strive towards the good. And, but look, it, we survived as a species. We survived, yeah. and it, it's, it's not that it's a double-edged sword because there's nothing good on the other side. Yes, there's but no I'm, evil on the other side, but there's what nothing I'm saying good. Is, on the other side. What I'm saying is. If we're if it's if it's an evolutionary process and we come out of animality, there's always going to yeah. be some tendency to be oh, let me just take the guy's food real quick. And like you, yeah. you almost can't learn about the long term consequences until you engage in the act of evil. I'm not talking about any individual necessarily. I'm talking about us learning across time. I agree. So we had to we had to make mistakes through history. Mm-hmm. You think by the 21st century or by <laughs> you know hundred a few hundred thousand years into the existence of human beings. We'd have figured most of it out, but it's it's it turns out that it's hard. It turns out that it's that, that these ideas are not easy. Think about this philosophy, the idea of thinking conceptually about the world, mm-hmm. right? Is new, right? It's it's probably five thousand years old, mm-hmm. maybe maybe a little less. Mm-hmm. Um, even the Old Testament, which is the first kind of book of an attempt to grapple with 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 the nature of existence and the nature mm-hmm. of reality and mm-hmm. and explaining things in terms of one God versus, you know, all these multiple mm-hmm. gods that, you know, it, it, even that is what, uh, three, 4,000 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. that's nothing. We've probably been around on earth over a hundred thousand years. So mm-hmm. as a, as a homo sapiens, so uh, 5,000 years of philosophy of thinking of, of trying to make sense of the world is we're still a young species is right. in other words. And there's still a lot for us to figure out, I think we figured out a lot. I think Ayn Rand does a lot of heavy lifting here. There's a lot of work for us here. I wish more people took it seriously, particularly more philosophers and more thinkers took it seriously. But it's going to take a while until we internalize this and we live up to our potential. We live up to being human, which, right. is, which is a challenge. It's to live up to being human rather than down to being an animal. Yeah, that's, and- that's the conflict that exists in the world. It, 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 human beings being animals or human beings being human. Right. And it's a... It's up to us to choose, basically. Um, yeah. And, and to, okay, there's an accumulation game here too. Right? We're accumulating learnings and concepts and principles over time. We're passing these; they have to be passed on. Clearly, oh, intergenerationally, absolutely. that's you know mythology and narrative and and even great works of philosophy, like I, what yeah. Ayn Rand's doing here. And we're evolved. We evolved to become conceptual beings, but it seems like we're still on that evolutionary track. Like we're trying to transcend our animality still. But now I look at the world and see things like the central bank, you know, really preying on property rights. I mean, are we just having to go through this lesson of pain again? Like you can't print money to solve problems. I mean, because that that in in and of itself is a violation of property. So it's more animalistic than it is civilized. But, but that's what people have to learn. People have to learn that property is what civilization is, 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 a, is a core value of civilization. Right. Property is a core value of peace. Uh, that if they want to live peaceful, productive, happy lives, we have to defend property. We have to protect property. That's one thing they have to learn. Then they have to learn that central bank is a violation of that. That's a whole other conceptual yeah. kind of connection, right? 
And then they have to figure out how to get rid of the central bank, right. which is a whole other political kind of project. Right? Yeah. So they, they, it's none of this is simple. It's frustrating because you think we would have learned already. But again, the, the United States was created 250 years ago. I think the greatest country ever created. Still not perfect, but, but a big jump forward. It's only 250 years old versus uh, 5,000 years. So John Locke wrote about individual rights and property rights, and the centrality of property rights, the importance of property rights. What is it? Um, 300 years ago. Mm. That's like that in history, right? Mm. So for 300 years, and we've moved from, see, animals evolve biologically, and it can take a long time for, for them to evolve. Mm. We don't really evolve biologically. There's people who have stupid ideas don't die off, right. partially because we, we feed them, partially because we have uh, healthcare and medicine, and we don't let people die off. So the only way to evolve is through culture, mm -hmm. through education, through mm -hmm. philosophy, through ideas. Mm -hmm. So ideas are now the way we evolve. And that's why, you know, what we're doing, uh, educating people about property rights, educating people about the purpose of life, educating people about reason and rationality. That's the way culture will ultimately evolve towards the right ideas. Mm -hmm. But just like in biological evolution it could take hundreds, thousands of years, thousands of years, really, this evolution of ideas can take decades right. and and maybe even, maybe even centuries. So mm. ultimately, I think our ideas will win. It's the ultimately I'm worried about. <laughs> How long <laughs> yeah, no, it's point well taken. And that educational effort across history is always at odds with individual incentives and individual short-sightedness and inexperience, right? Some, some guy comes to power in his twenties. He just thinks I'm all that in a bag of chips. He doesn't care about evil or these long run consequences. Yeah, so, and, 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 and I've even met, you know, I've even met people who, with good ideas, people in Silicon Valley who who think that, and, and you know, who think that we don't have to engage with ideas in education because technology will solve it all. <laughs> and that's when I when I talk about the fact that ideas shape history and the fact that I don't think Bitcoin can win unless we have the right ideas. That's what worries me. It worries me that the people who basically are on our side, right, in a sense mm -hmm. that they want freedom and they want. They think it'll just happen. Right. And where they have both uh, visibility and profile and status and money to help make it happen, it's a shame that they're not actively engaged in the battle for ideas, hmm. which I think is essential to make the battle over central bank, the battle over currency, the battle over money, the battle over property a reality. Yes. Eventually a reality. So let's let me let's zero in on that on the printing of money because this is one. I've described this as like the recurrent self-deception of humanity. We've learned the lesson. I mean, countless, countless, countless times we've learned it rationally. It's been deduced from axioms by the Austrians. It's been empirically experienced across history. Yet we, the lesson does not seem to stick. Like it seems to stick for some amount of time. And then a few generations later, we're back at it. Here we are again, worldwide, back at it. In a There's real nothing special about that. There's nothing special about that. Think about all experiences. Socialism never worked. Even mm. before we had a work, word for socialism, it didn't work. The mm. 15th century had communes mm. that failed, right? Communes have never worked. Voluntary communes, coercive communes, doesn't matter. Communal living is not sustainable. It, it never works. Socialism never has worked, yet people want to try it over and over again. I would argue that a morality 
you know, Ayn Rand here is advocating for a morality of, of self-interest. I would argue that a morality of altruism, a morality of sacrifice, a morality of living for other people is something that will keep trying. It usually leads mm. to death and destruction. Mm. Um, statism, nationalism lead to death and destruction, yet nationalism is on the rise all over the world mm -hmm. right now. So human beings don't learn from experience. They learn from experience, unfortunately, um, uh, their the learning from experience is always dependent on the philosophy they bring to the table with them. Mm -hmm. And since most of them, most of the philosophy that exists in the world around us is a philosophy that is not attached to reality, doesn't view reality as the ultimate judge, mm. what's right and wrong, good or bad, workable, not workable. So, so uh, uh, people might in their, you know, in their business life, in their work life, view reality that way, but then they go and in their personal life and their political life and their, uh, uh, philosophical beliefs that detached completely from reality, which is what Plato taught people, then it's impossible. Then it's, it's not surprising that we try, keep trying. And they, they keep saying, look, we know it doesn't, it hasn't worked, but next time we're going to get close to the platonic idea. We're going to get next time. We'll do it right. Next time we'll figure it out. Ne you know, next time we'll, we'll, and you know, and, and you'll hear people saying, particularly religious people, well, there's no such thing as perfection. We're all flawed. So we keep trying until we get, we, we, we get it better. But what's the alternative? You know, just to leave it up to self-interested markets. We don't believe in self-interest. Self-interest is evil. We know that. We've been taught that from when we were two years old. So this is why philosophy is so important, right? We're not going to stop printing our money until we're changing people's view of the nature of man, our conceptual ability, uh, reality is a standard of what's mm -hmm. true and what's not. Um, uh, reality is the guide and, and, and your own self-interest as noble mm. rather than evil. Mm. And if we can change those views, then money, as you said, money, money printing is easy. Who was a stupid person who figured who, who, who tried to print money for the whole economy? I mean, that's obviously ridiculous, but to get to the point where people like to me, when I went Ayn Rand and I read all this, uh, this philosophy, when I read the Austrians, it was like, yeah, of course. It was like, once you get the philosophical concepts, once you get the principles, right. the application in economics, yeah, well, of course. This is why I think what really is needed out there is philosophical education rather than economic education. We've mm -hmm. got great economists. We've had them. You named some of them. But, but even, the, even the Milton Friedmans and, the, and the, you know, Adam Smith, who might not have been perfect and might not have been von Mises, mm -hmm. right? They were pretty good, mm -hmm. and yet nobody listened, mm -hmm. and nobody seems to care. And even though they've been right, every one of their predictions comes true. Right. Nobody cares because that's not what matters to them. They've created an ideal that is detached from reality, and that's what needs to be challenged. So, well, I mean, are not the philosophical foundations of Western civilization life, liberty, property? Like, what are we missing I don't think I, I, I think that um, the philosophical foundations of, of Western civilization, I think, are reason and individualism. But neither reason nor individualism were completely embraced mm -hmm. and neither reason nor individualism were properly understood. So immediately after the Enlightenment, which is the birth of Western civilization, there's a counter enlightenment. Mm. led by Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer and Marx and, and ultimately Nietzsche. And they all are fighting against the idea of reason and individualism. Mm. And they're making convincing cases and people are buying it. 
This mm. is why it's within the West that communism comes out. It's within the West that we get fascism. It's in the West that we get central bankers and the sophistication of, of central bankers. Because there's always this um, in, in Western civilization, unfortunately, there's still these negative forces that are harking back to the Dark Ages and to Plato. Plato is the real villain. To Plato and the Dark Ages that keep you know, challenging reason and individualism. And since in the Enlightenment, they didn't ground those concepts properly, they were weak. Mm-hmm. They are being eaten up. I, I, again, this is I, why I think Ayn Rand is so important. I think Ayn Rand takes the ideas of the Enlightenment and grounds them, gives them mm-hmm. foundations, gives them the proper philosophical defense. And I think if she is taken more seriously, that's when we can move on. That's when we can actually start seeing real changes in the culture. Hmm. Interesting. So we're still growing up, basically. We're still I mean, growing we're, up. We're, we're still yeah. kids. We're still children. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile at breedlove22, um, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including Bitcoin 2022 affiliate cells. My link tree is l-i-n-k-t-r backslash breedlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.